If you have a Bible, turn to Revelation 2. You'll find an insert in your bulletin also that will give you the outline of today's message on the front panel. And the second panel is the passage. And if you can't find any of that, you'll see what you need on the screen. We're in a series on the book of Revelation, that mysterious last book of the Bible. Uh, But we're trying to do it to uh, bring encouragement to you. Uh, Let's uh, let's stop and ask God to be with us as we dig into his word. Lord, uh, we have been like your subjects that have entered your courtroom, O King, and we've uh, given you praise, we've given you adoration, we've confessed to you the ways in which we have failed you, we have gratefully received your forgiveness, and we've heard your assurance of pardon, and now, Lord, we want to hear you speak to us. Uh, Tell us what you want us to know and do. Give us the assurances of your grace and your mercy to us. Father, as we hear your word, Lord, we ask you to forgive the sins of the one who sits on this platform because those sins are many and they're serious. We pray that despite the messenger, that you'll take your word and you'll show us Jesus. Show us Christ Jesus, that our hearts will be changed. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Wouldn't it be great if uh, you could accurately predict the future? And don't you hate it when you're wrong? (laughs) I do. In 1962, an executive of the Decca Recording Company talked about why they rejected the Beatles. Okay, talk about being wrong. This is what he said, we don't like their sound and guitar music is on its way out. (laughs) Wrong. Back in the 1970s and 80s, there were some uh, business executives with some computer companies, I've been told, that never thought that personal computers would ever rival mainframes in terms of of, uh, market share and usability. Again, very, very wrong. (laughs) When I was in high school, I played tennis for a couple of years, and uh, the guy that I played tennis for told us about being a part of an investment group or an investment club of some kind. I've forgotten some of the details, but I remember him saying that there was someone who was presenting an opportunity to their group. It was a new drink. It was coming out of Gainesville, Florida, was where it was developed. It was a sports drink, and it was called Gatorade. And he said, when he said, my friend told me, or my coach told me, when when the guy said Gatorade, everybody started laughing and nobody bought in. I guess that's what happens when you sell Gatorade to Alabama and Auburn fans, okay? (laughs) Nobody wants to aid the Gators if you're from Alabama or Auburn. So, uh, you know, even back then, he said, man, I wish I'd gotten in on the ground floor of that. I would have made a lot of money. Wouldn't it be great sometimes to be able to really see into the future accurately? Well, the book of Revelation tells us about the future. At least it tells us the big picture of an important part of the future, and that's the end of time and the return of Christ. And basically, it says this, Jesus wins. We know the end of the story. We've seen the end of the story, and the end of the story is Jesus wins. And if you belong to Jesus, you benefit from his victory. He'll take care of you. You'll share in all that good stuff. It's all going to be all right. And the basics of that story are simply this. Jesus returns physically and visibly and bodily. He establishes a new heaven and a new earth. There is a judgment. His enemies are banished. And he establishes a place that we live, a place called heaven, that is a place of beauty and goodness and joy beyond our description. And that belief ought to make every difference for us every day of our lives. Do you remember the Chilean miners that back in the fall for two months they were trapped underground? Can you imagine what they were feeling 
in those first few days that they were trapped. But can you also imagine their hope and their encouragement and their joy when contact was made from above ground? And when they started receiving food and water and other necessities. And in their case, they didn't even know that their deliverance, their rescue was a certainty. But just that it was a possibility or a probability changed everything, didn't it? It gave them hope. It changed their perspective. The book of Revelation is a book of encouragement. It's a book of hope. It's a book of comfort for people that are suffering. People like you and me. And it basically says our final rescue is certain. It's all going to be all right. Jesus is in charge. Now, some of you may be thinking, if you've been sort of a churchy person, been around the Bible for a while, you may be thinking, Bob, I've read the book of Revelation, I've tried to, and it is confusing, and it is mysterious, and this seems to me to be anything but comforting. Where's the comfort in that? Well, I like the way one person has put it. They said, uh, the book of Revelation, if you look to the book of Revelation and ask Uh, this question. If you ask, what's the future going to be? And what are the details of the return of Jesus? Then the book of Revelation is very foggy. But if you look to the book of Revelation to ask this question, who is Jesus? The book of Revelation is crystal clear. I think that's right on target. If you want to know about the details of the end of time and the return of Jesus, it's very foggy. But if you want to know who Jesus is now, In all of his power and all of his glory, the book of Revelation, my friends, is crystal clear. And that makes all the difference. Early in my ministry here in the city of Atlanta, there was uh, some friends of mine in the church that I pastored. And they had some other friends that in their case, the wife died suddenly and unexpectedly while they were still in their 20s. I don't remember now if it was disease or of an accident, but I remember she was gone quickly. And even in this man's pain, he continued to trust in Jesus. He told the story that someone asked him, don't you wonder why? And his response was so wise. He said, for me, the question is not why, the question is who. Who is God? And to paraphrase his response, he said, in Jesus, I see that God is a God who I can trust. The book of Revelation tells us clearly who Jesus is, and that is, changes everything when we suffer, when we hurt, when we face temptation, when we face our sin. This book is about Jesus. The first five words of this book are the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as Randy has pointed out, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ because it comes through Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ because he's the one who controls all the events that are described in this book. But I would also submit to you, it's the revelation of Jesus because it's the revelation about Jesus. It reveals him. It shows clearly who he is in all of his glory and in all of his power. And that makes all the difference in the world. It's the reason we are comforted. It's the reason we repent. It's the reason we rejoice. Well, today we are in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. In fact, we're coming to the end of chapter 2, and we're coming to the fourth of these seven letters. In chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, there are seven letters of Jesus to seven churches of the New Testament age, uh, that is, of the first century. All those churches are in, or were in what is now Turkey. And as Randy has pointed out, these seven churches represent all churches of all places for all time. And that means... This letter's for us. It comes to us, and it's about us, so we need to listen to it. This fourth letter goes to a church in a city called Thyatira. Thyatira. 
It was a smaller town in the shadow of Pergamum. Now, Pergamum was the city and the church that Randy preached about two weeks ago. And because Thyatira was in the shadows of Pergamum, they faced a lot of the same issues. They hear a lot of the same commendations and uh, commands that Jesus gave to the other church. They had a lot of similar kinds of things going on. And that's what we're going to see today. Now, today, we're not going to read the passage up front. We're going to read it little by little as we go through it. But today, we want to focus on Jesus. This passage tells us about Jesus And it tells us three things about Jesus, and it gives us five implications for our lives. So dig in and follow with me, okay? The first thing we see is this, that according to this passage in the book of Revelation as a whole, Jesus is a holy and powerful king. Therefore, tremble. Jesus is a holy and powerful king. Therefore, tremble. If you don't see anything else in the book of Revelation, you see that Jesus is powerful, that he's holy. And the result is we should tremble. There's a fellow church of our denomination in Brooklyn, New York. It's called Resurrection Presbyterian Church. It's pastored by a guy named Vito Ayuto. He and his wife are musicians. And in their church is a musician by the name of Sufjan Stevens. From what I understand, this church is young and cool and hip in every way, as Brooklyn is increasingly becoming, from what I hear. Now, in their website, this church that is so focused on grace and fo- so focused on the gospel, this is how they describe worship. Don't miss it. They say the worship of God is the central act of the church. When we gather as a community for worship, it's a time and place for us to know the presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and to consider the goodness, justice, power, and wisdom of our good God. As he forgives our sins, we praise his grace to us in Jesus Christ. And as we worship, don't miss this, as we worship, We tremble at his threats, and we believe his promises. That is so on target. As we worship, we tremble at his threats, and we believe his promises. The ultimate purpose of the book of Revelation is to bring us comfort and peace. But my friends, before there is a holy peace, there has to be a holy fear. Before we are comforted and rejoice, we need to tremble because he is holy And he is powerful. Someone has well said that the job of the preacher is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. I like that. I hope our preaching does that for you. We're supposed to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. And the risen Jesus in all seven letters, or most of the seven anyway, he does both. He comforts the afflicted and he afflicts the comfortable. Let's dig into the passage. This is what it says in Revelation 2.18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Let's talk first about the city and then about Jesus. Thyatira was a city that was bordered by gently sloping hills between two rivers. Though it was a garrison town, it didn't have much of an illustrious history except for this. It was on a main thoroughfare of trade. And so it was on a main thoroughfare of communication as well. And so there in Thyatira, there was developed a very strong manufacturing and marketing center, especially uh, of of materials for apparel, uh, cloths and fabrics and all those leather goods and all those kinds of things. Like Atlanta, Thyatira was a business hub. Like Atlanta, it was a transportation hub. Like Atlanta, it was a place where people were busy making money. Acts 16 talks about the conversion of a lady by the name of Lydia. She was a seller of purple, selling fabric. She was from Thyatira. That fits what the city was all about. 
Now notice how verse 18 describes Jesus. It says first, his eyes are like blazing fire. What does that mean? That means when Jesus looks at you or me, he penetrates right through us. His eyes see everything. There is nothing that is unhidden from his penetrating view. And when he looks at us, there is a blaze about holiness and a fire of holiness. That's what that represents and what it means. It also says here that his feet were like burnished bronze. In the Middle East at this time, if there was a statue of a god, often that statue would have the feet of burnished bronze, not of clay. And it represented that this god is strong. This god is powerful. This god is unmoved. And so here in these very few words, what we're told about Jesus is Jesus is holy. Jesus sees everything Jesus is all-powerful. Jesus cannot be moved. Jesus is God. That's solemn. That's wowing. That should make us tremble. He goes on in verse 19, and this is what Jesus says to the church at Thyatira. I know your deeds, your love, and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. So he does commend the church. He says, you've got love, you've got faith, you're serving me. In fact, you're doing more for me than you've ever done before. And you would think if a church is doing more for Jesus than it's ever done before, well, there'd be nothing but commendation. But then verse 20 gives us the shocking rebuke. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess by her teaching. She misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Probably this prophetess in this church wasn't literally named Jezebel, but Jesus calls her Jezebel because he's referring back to the Jezebel of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, 9th century BC, the wife of King Ahab, one of the evil kings of the northern kingdom of Israel, was a lady by the name of Jezebel. She wasn't Jewish. She married into the Jewish nation, so to speak, and she brought with her the worship of Baal, a Canaanite god of fertility. And Baal was worshipped through the use of prostitutes in the temple and of, of acts of immorality. And that was exactly the same kind of religion being practiced in Thyatira. And so Jesus calls her Jezebel. Jezebel of the Old Testament was also the one who tried to kill the prophet Elijah after Elijah had defeated all the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Now, you know, today there are a lot of us perhaps who give to our daughters Old Testament names, maybe Hannah or Sarah or Deborah. Nobody names their daughter Jezebel. Have you noticed that? That's one you don't want to use. And the reason is, is pretty significant. Uh, here was this person leading Israel actively into idolatry and adultery and all kinds of immorality. Well, this prophetess in this New Testament church was like her. And, and here's what was going on. Just like in Pergamum, Thyatira was a city of, of industry, and it was a city where there are all kinds of trade guilds. And so there were wool workers and linen workers and dyers and leather workers and tanners and makers of outer garments. And every guild had their patron god. And the way you worshipped these patron gods and goddesses were through these big feasts, there were also idolatrous sex orgies. That's what happened. That's the way they worshipped. That was part of it. And perhaps this, it seems, this prophetess in this church was saying to them, well, you know, you've got to make a living. 
You can't just roll over and play dead because the truth was if you weren't in a guild, you couldn't get much, if any, work at all. And it was going to be hard to, to feed your family. So she was saying, you know, you've got to make a living. After all, you don't have to take these gods really seriously and really, really mean what's going on there. Just go and participate. And you can be a Christian and still all do this other stuff too. It's no big deal. Now, as morally schizophrenic as that sounds, I would submit to you, there are those in the church of today that are equally morally schizophrenic. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 7, the thing I hate, I end up doing. But the good thing I love, I seem unable to do. Now, in some cases, that experience is the case of real Christians. And in some cases, only those who profess to be Christians. But in the case here in this church, the risen Jesus says, you're doing something here that's awful. Awful. And Jesus is in the process here of figuring out who's a real believer and who isn't. But he's basically saying to this church, you can't live like this over here and like this over there. And so he tells us that we should tremble. Verses 21 through 23 says how seriously Jesus takes this. He says, I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I'll cast her on a bed of suffering, and I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely. That is those who are following her leadership, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, not her literal children, but those that were under her influence. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. This last Wednesday morning, I spent the entire morning downtown as a citizen of Fulton County in a pool of people who were potential jurors. Some of you have had that same joy as well. Praise God, about noon I was set free and I could go home. But all morning I sat there with all these other people, and you've probably been through the drill, waiting to see who would be called and who wouldn't. And as I sat there, I thought to myself, I wonder what kind of cases are going to be heard by the jurors who are picked today. And I began to wonder, I wonder how many of these accused are innocent and how many are guilty. And I also began to wonder this, of those who are guilty, how many of them have this in common? They thought to themselves, I will never get caught no one will ever know I'm going to get away with this. I wonder how often they thought that way. You know, the truth is Jesus knows. Jesus sees. Jesus is holy. His eyes are like blazing fire, and they're blazing for holiness. A.W. Tozer said that God hates sin like a mother hates the polio that ravages the body of her child. That's why God hates sin. It destroys your life and mine. It destroys his good creation. And so his eyes are blazing with fire against sin, even the sin in us. It says his feet are like burnished bronze. In other words, he's immovable. He's powerful. And one of the great lessons of the book of Revelation is simply this, my friends. Don't mess with Jesus. Don't mess with Jesus. Don't think that you can make a fool of him. Don't think that you can trample his blood under your feet. Don't think that you can play games and he'll never notice. As C.S. Lewis says of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, he's good, but he's not tame and he's not safe. And the truth is that Jesus is holy and he is omnipotent. And that means when he threatens us, when he warns us, and when he rebukes us, you know how we should respond? We should tremble. There is such a thing as holy fear. 
You see, we can't hear the good news until we hear the bad news. And that, my friends, that's the bad news. Well, the good news begins in the second point of our, of our message. Not only is it true that Jesus is a holy and powerful king, and therefore we tremble, also Jesus is a persistent, patient, and redemptive king. Therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. Notice again in verse 21. This is what Jesus says to this woman called Jezebel. I have given her time to repent of her immorality. That's a short phrase, but it's so significant. Think of all the bad she was doing. Think of her evil influence. Think how she was leading people into these horrible things that they were doing. You would have thought that maybe the hammer would have, would have fallen immediately. But in God's long suffering, in his patience, he gave her time to repent. She didn't take use of that time, but he gave it. Let me ask you here today, is God giving you time to repent? Is he? Maybe I'm speaking to someone, probably in a crowd this large, no doubt there are those. You're involved in an affair. You're married. Do you have a relationship with someone sexually, emotionally, intimately that's not your spouse? Or maybe this is only for you the next affair. You've had a number, and so far you think you've kept them all secret. Maybe I'm speaking to a single adult here and you're sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you know that it's wrong and you don't let anybody at church know about it, but you know what you're doing and he or she knows what you're doing and it continues and it goes on and on. I wonder how many here are perhaps carrying out a secret life of homosexuality or addiction to pornography. I wonder what, how many cases there may be business people in this room who are skimming off the top and you're cheating and you're defrauding, or maybe you're cheating on your taxes, and the money is just too accessible. It just seems too easy, and you've been getting away with it too long, and you think that nobody really knows. Maybe you've been using recreationally prescription drugs or illegal drugs. It is rampant these days. Maybe nobody but you and your spouse know exactly how much you're drinking, but it's a lot. Maybe business politics, the politics of where you work have gotten so bad that for you, you're going to win no matter the price. Not the price to you, the price to somebody else. It doesn't matter who you have to run over, whose career you have to destroy, how dishonest you have to be, how many lies you have to tell, you are going to win. Maybe there's a mom here, and the truth of the matter is, your anger is destroying your family. Maybe it's a dad. Maybe that anger is destroying the marriage, but for sure it's killing your children. Oh, when you're out at church and when you're out at work and you're out with other people, you're happy and you're outgoing and you're bubbly. And nobody would ever guess that when you go home behind closed doors, your family is afraid of you because your anger is always just that much below the surface. And when you blow up, everybody around you pays the price. And maybe you've selected one of your kids... And he or she has become your whipping boy. All the anger of your life keeps getting poured out on that dear child. And you've been doing it for a while and it's been going on and on. And nothing seems to change. Maybe there's a young lady here that you've been starving your body because you just can't be thin enough. And you're destroying yourself but you can't see it. Or maybe... You binge and then you purge. You binge and then you purge. And you throw it back up and you think you're getting away with it. And it may be, be very well that the people around you know and they care and they're hurting. 
I don't know what's going on with you, but maybe are you one of those people that has thought to yourself, I don't think that God sees, I don't think that he cares. In Psalm 94, it describes some people that were doing a lot of evil. And one of the reasons they kept doing evil was this thought, God does not see. The God of Jacob pays no attention. If that's going on with you, let me give you a change of your paradigm. Maybe it's not that Jesus doesn't see. Maybe he's giving you time to repent. Maybe the hammer hasn't fallen because he's hoping you'll repent. He's hoping you'll repent. Is today perhaps a day of life-changing repentance for you? For some of us in this room, it really needs to be. What is repentance? It's a change of heart. Repentance is turning around and going the other way. Repentance always begins with seeing how destructive and how evil sin really is. Let me give you a visual for this kind of destruction. On the screen, you're going to see a picture of my alma mater, my high school, Gadsden High School. Now, this is what the school building looked like when some really old people around here, like Randy Pope and Wade Williams and John Musselman, finished high school. All these people, they're way older than me. That's what it looked like. This is what the building looked like on November the 9th of my senior year. I don't know if you can see that, but the building is in, in flames. And I'm here to tell you, I didn't do it, okay? <laughs> Wasn't even near the building that night. I had, had no part in it, okay? But the place burned to the ground. Here's what the building looked like on November 10th, an aerial shot. It was all gone, except for the bricks and the walls. Some other shots of the interior. This was the auditorium, the door going in. That was a stairwell near the main foyer. This was one of the classrooms. If I remember correctly, just a month or two after that fire, a high school ministry that I was involved with had a spe special speaker come into town. And we were meeting at a coffee shop directly across the street from this high school. He was talking about the subject of sex that always gets the attention of high school students and anybody else that has a heartbeat. And I remember him saying that night, sex is like fire. He said, fire, if you put it in the right place, is good. It cooks our food. It warms us. It produces energy. But if you put fire where it's not supposed to be, for example, if you put it in the hallways of a school, and then he pointed dramatically across the street, that is what happens. That is what happens. You know what sin is? Sin is taking something good that God has created it and putting it in the wrong place and using it in the wrong way. It could be sex. It could be money. It could be power. It could be all kinds of desires that we have that under the Lordship of Christ can and will be carried out and should be carried out in the right way. But we, we pervert those things and use them in ways that God never intended. And they become destructive and they become evil. Sin is also taking a good desire of God and making it the ultimate thing, putting it in the place of God himself. I have to have this thing or I can't be happy. That's what happens when sin occurs. And repentance always sees three things clearly. First of all, repentance always sees the destructiveness and the evil of sin. You'll probably never turn away from the sins that enslave you until you really realize how evil it is and how destructive it is to you and others. Secondly, sin always sees clearly the lordship of Jesus. He has a right to tell me how to live and what to believe because Jesus is Lord. And not only does repentance see clearly the destructiveness and evil of sin, not only does it see clearly the lordship of Jesus, but biblical repentance, not remorse, but repentance, sees the cross of Jesus Christ. And there is the good news. 
We turn in tears away from our sin, but we turn in joy to the cross of Jesus Christ. And in the cross, we see our forgiveness. In the cross, we see our cleansing. In the cross, we see the ability to be rebuilt. In the cross, we see the opportunity to be redeemed. In the cross, we see the freedom from this evil thing that has held us captive for so long. So I want to tell you in a sermon that has a lot of bad news, my friends, here's the good news. When you turn away from this evil thing that's been hurting you and you run to the cross of Jesus Christ, you're cleansed, you're forgiven. You're running into the embrace of Jesus, into the arms of Jesus. And he wants to overpower you with his love so that his love will always be enough. That's the good news of what repentance is and how it comes about. Repentance, my friends, is to be a daily lifestyle of the Christian. We're always to be repenting every day. But let me ask you, is perhaps for you a day, today, the day of life-changing repentance is you get a huge thing in your life, off your back and out of your life. Your life will never be the same because you've embraced repentance. The book of Revelation is about Jesus. He is a holy and powerful king, and therefore he's the reason that we tremble with holy fear. Jesus is a persistent, patient, and redemptive king. And therefore we repent. And lastly today is this. Jesus is a good, kind, and conquering king. Therefore rejoice, persevere, and be comforted. He's good. He's kind. He's conquering. He's going to win. Therefore, if you belong to him, rejoice and persevere and be comforted. Look at the rest of our passage today, verses 24 through 29, and hear the gospel, hear the good news. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I've received authority from my Father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know how in a good Western, at the end of the movie, the cavalry always arrives just in the nick of time to rescue the good guys and to get rid of the bad guys and to win the battle? Well, my friends, in Revelation 19, here is when the cavalry arrives. Here is when we are finally rescued. Revelation 19, this is what it says. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is when we win. This is when Jesus wins. This is the final rescue. And the most amazing, one of the most amazing parts of the story to me is this, is when he comes back and he rescues us, this passage says he allows us to join with him in the reigning over the nations and over all of creation. We fight with him, he wins the war, and we get to sit on the throne with him and help him reign.
We battle against sin, but we're not doing so well. We're flat on our back, and we're about to be run through. It's Jesus who wins the war, and Jesus who delivers us. And then, in his grace, he allows us to sit with him and reign with him. Unbelievable good news. That's the end of the story. That's not even the best part of the end of the story. Look again at verse 28 here. Jesus also says to us, I will give him the morning star. Now, what's the morning star? It says in Revelation 22:16. this is what it says. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Not only do we reign with him, it says here, Jesus gives us himself. At the end of time, there is what is called the wedding feast of the bride and the bridegroom. And we're the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom. And the picture is that when Jesus comes back, it's like the man who is engaged and he comes and gets his bride. And the wedding takes place and the marriage is consummated. And they give themselves to one another face to face. And my friends, that is a picture of the end of time in which we see Jesus face to face. And there's an intimacy with him like you can never imagine and just parenthetically, since it's been in this passage all the way through, it's another reason that marriage and sexuality is so holy. It represents and illustrates the relationship with Jesus that we have as his church. At the end of time, not only does Jesus give us authority to reign over the nations, at the end of time, we're his and he is ours in the most amazing way. My friends, that's the end of the story. That's the end of the story. So let me ask you today, are you sad? Are you suffering loss? Remember, Jesus is Lord. He's coming back. So rejoice and persevere and be comforted. Are you tired of all the mess around you, living in this fallen world? Persevere, rejoice, be comforted. Jesus is Lord and he's going to come back for you. Are you tired of facing the temptations and the sins inside your own heart? Keep fighting, my friend. Keep fighting. Persevere. Rejoice, but be comforted that Jesus is Lord and he's coming back for you. My friends, the question today is not why. Why am I suffering? Why have I lost this loved one? Why do I keep battling temptation? The question is not why. The question is who. And Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the reason we tremble with holy fear. He's the reason we repent with tears and joy. He's the reason we rejoice He's the reason we are comforted. He's the reason we keep on keeping on. Jesus is coming back, and when he does, he's going to make everything all right. That's the end of the story. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you very much that you've told us the end of this story. We look at ourselves, and we look at our temptations. We look at the evil one, and we feel like Peter in this movie clip. We are flat on our back. We think we're not going to make it. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're the one who comes and saves sinners over and over and over again. Save us today. Deliver us from the sin inside of us and around us. Set us free and give us the willingness to joyfully, honestly, truly repent that we would know your presence. We thank you that Jesus is King of Kings. We pray it all in his name. Amen.